I really do firmly believe that every single person's opinion matters and that that's, you know, even though it's tricky because some people don't have informed opinions, I do think that everyone's opinion fundamentally does have an impact on the rest of the world. Hey there, welcome to After School Program the podcast where we talk with young, successful adults about how they navigate their lives and careers after school. I'm Connor Hine, and with me as always is my co-host, Zach McHale. Today's guest is Dan Corey. Dan is an associate segment producer at MSNBC. In this episode, we cover Dan's reflection on the past year in news, his role at MSNBC, and Dan's experience interviewing President Barack Obama. All right, Dan, so I just want to jump right into it here with uh, what was it like? Were you working on the day of the insurrection? Oh, that I actually do have a good story for that. You um, wanna, could you walk us through that day then? The yeah, so I, I will just say I was I was working that day, but because I work in the morning, um, you know, I w- was done with work by the time that it happened. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> the... The thing that was very surreal about that day was I was at my friend's place. So I have three very close friends of mine who live about 10 minutes away from here. Mm -hmm. Um, All of them were not home, but because I don't have uh, a washer dryer here, um, they let me use theirs at their place. So I was like, okay, like I'll stop by, I'll do my laundry there. I'll say hi to their cats yada yada and when i was there i was reading i was like okay i'll enjoy some me time in the middle of the day like you know i was having a real relaxing yeah what could go wrong yeah what could go wrong and then suddenly my friend from work texts me and she goes do you see what's happening and i was like what like no what like literally thinking nothing of it and you know, we we knew earlier that day that there were protests that were going to be happening there and that there was the potential that they could get uh, violent or unruly of some sort. But I just, I didn't think it was going to be, you know, actual people in the Senate chamber storming, like literally storming the Capitol. You saw all those images of, you know, someone carrying Nancy Pelosi's lectern. Mm-hmm. Um you know, people, I mean, breaking into the rooms, feet right. up on the desk, grabbing whatever documents are hanging around. Like they were going to find something that's just sitting on the Senate floor. <laughs> right. And, you know, that was just next level. And, you know, I was like scrolling through my phone and I was like, okay, like this is crazy. And I turn on their TV while I'm doing my laundry there. And the first thing I see, is the image, like literally the second I turn on the TV, is the camera cuts to a dead body being taken out of it. Mm. So, I mean, that's all that really happened to me. Mm. I didn't have really any personal connection to it, but it was still, I, I will say, like, I think one of the most shocking things about it, aside from the fact that it happened, um, is it, I think it showed just how desensitized a lot of the nation is to shocking news. Hmm. Um, you know, I was talking to some people afterward 
about it, just kind of gauging, you know, their thoughts or whatever. Cause you know, what happened that day is an objectively awful thing. And uh, you know, r- regardless of your political affiliation, you shouldn't be wanting to go against, you know, the institution of American democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and watching that and talking about it with people afterward, they're like, Oh, like, are you surprised? And it's like, maybe I shouldn't have been, but I don't know. There was just something about it that felt like a kind of a watershed moment. And I, I'm glad that we're seeing more people like AOC talk about um, their experiences with it. We've had reporters um, talk about it from various outlets. Um, you know, nothing about what happened should be okay. Mm-hmm. Now, that's my personal take on it. Yeah. And, you know, and then when you look back on it and haven't seen this event, it's like, yeah, it seemed like things were built into this, but then still to see something like this actually unfold is still just kind of jaw dropping. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's just so crazy to me is that, you know, as of us talking right now, it still hasn't even been a month. Yeah. And, you know, we, we've seen all these like, uh, you know, tweets over the past uh, month about like, you know, four Wednesdays in, in January, it starts off with the insurrection. Then I think it's uh, the articles of impeachment uh, or the, the articles of the article of impeachment passed mm-hmm. against former president Trump, then uh, president Biden's inauguration. And then the, what happened with GameStop, which is a whole nother thing, mm-hmm. but um, <laughs> you know, it it's, there have been a lot of shocking things that have happened this past year that personally, like I never thought in a million years I'd be covering. Mm-hmm. Um but that really, I think that really has to take the cake. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just seemed, I don't know, just a, a whole year of, of crazy events. And granted, the news is, you know, can always be pretty nuts. But this year in particular, it just seemed like a lot of things were getting out of hand and really getting blown up. Well, um, the, the thing that I think, you know, when it comes to th- everything getting blown up, I think, you know, for, for lack of a better phrase, like uh, I do think that the pandemic has fundamentally destabilized so many things. Um, and in a way, all of these issues are interconnected. Um, you know, obviously the economy was directly impacted by the shutdowns and the pandemic. Um, we saw the largest racial justice movement in the United States really ever I'm, I'm pretty sure it's kind of hard to quantify it but it's likely to be and which um, even spread internationally too right and i think you know i think part of that is the fact that people were witnessing what what happens um you know on on platforms seeing videos of stuff while they're at home and they're you know i think having so many people stuck at home um absorbing information from the outside world when they're stuck at home, um, you know, if you're fortunate enough to be at home, I think that that has been a very big part of why we've seen so much crazy stuff happen. Even even as much even as recently as the GameStop, friends. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could definitely say that something has something to do with a lot of people being at home or out of work and having a lot of time to just be on the computer and on the internet and 
kind of just builds on itself again. I mean, that community, the Wall Street Bets community has skyrocketed since mm-hmm. this stuff has blown up. Yeah. And then that in itself is like, you know, that's a whole nother conversation, but mm-hmm. it, it, it's just, it's, it's interesting to me how so many things this past year can be seen as tipping points. Um, you know, who, who knows what we're going to see years from now as a result of all of this. I hope it's a, it's a better, brighter future. I think it is personally, I do. Um, but you know, we, we've seen a lot of the ugly underbelly of what, of several facets of our society this year. Um, so I don't know. It, it's, it's just crazy to me. I, and I know it's like, Oh, everyone's like, Oh, it's so crazy. But if you really stop and think about it, it's insane what we've witnessed in the past year. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. And I feel like people use that saying, like, it's just so crazy. Cause like, at least when I say it, like I start thinking about what happened and then I stop myself by saying it's so crazy. You know what I mean? It's like my way out of not thinking about it, which I guess could be a good or bad thing. That's interesting to me because I think that a lot of people know that deep down and don't necessarily acknowledge it. Right. You know, I mean, and that's another thing too. The pandemic has taken a spectacular toll on the nation's mental health as well. Um, something, something like 40% of U.S. adults have reported having some sort of uh, symptoms of like depression, anxiety, something, some sort of mental yeah. health complication. Yeah, depression. And that study from the CDC came out in June. Lots happened since June. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know. Uh, it's like hard for me to put a to put a bow on it because it's very easy to to your point to say oh this is crazy but it I think that for a long time our society is going to have to kind of process the events of this past year moving forward like uh, so many people have pointed to 2020 as a year that's similar to like 1968 when we saw um, you know we we didn't see because we were not born yet but. Mm-hmm you know, uh, civil unrest, uh, uh, Martin Luther King being shot, all sorts of things of that sort. Right. Um, you know, there, if, if history is a guide to us, I think, you know, we can, we can, we can do better moving forward, but I think in order to move forward, we have to acknowledge, um, you know, just how much has happened. And I also think too, separately, not to bring politics into it, but I think that's one of the reasons why the COVID memorial in DC, uh, the day before the inauguration was so powerful to so many people because it was an acknowledgement of like the collective trauma that our nation has seen. I'm not a mental health expert or anything, but I don't know. There was something about that that seemed important to do. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, like with, just with like 12 step programs and stuff like that, where it's just like the first thing is acceptance. So, I mean, yeah. it kind of goes in line with acknowledging what has happened and just using that as a starting point. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to have this conversation, like kind of tiptoe around the politics of it. But with with, you know, the previous administration just not wanting to even talk about, you know, what happened with the pandemic, kind of brush it under the rug, like you're saying that the toll that takes on people's mental health to like 
not think about it and not realize how bad it is and still is is it's, it's crazy and to your point with the inauguration seeing that memorial and seeing all those flags and candles it was just like oh my god the visual representation really hit home well i, I think another thing too that makes makes uh all of this particularly surreal is at this point COVID is so widespread that so many people are kind of resigned to it and they're like oh well you know if i haven't gotten it i'm gonna get it anyway and you know there probably is a fair point to that to at least that line of thinking but at the end of the day you know right now we're on the verge of seeing 450,000 deaths in the united states that you know not all of them were preventable that's arguable like you know who it's hard to say but there definitely is no reason why there should be that many and there's no reason why we should be that far behind the rest of the world or ahead of the rest of the world, I guess, if you were looking at it that way. I think a lot of people's faith has been shaken this year too, because it's like the idea that America is the greatest country in the world. You know, it's hard to look at what happened in the past year and not question that. Yeah. And, and when you have, you know, uh, leaders in other countries outright questioning it too, after people storming the Capitol and saying, yeah. Well, you know, how it's tough to view America as the, you know, kind of, I don't know, beacon point of democracy when you have that going on. You know, and it's funny, too, because the rest of the world is so interested in what we do. Um, and if you looked at the front pages of all of these newspapers from all over, you can just go on museum.com and you can find all these front pages throughout the U.S., um, internationally. Internationally, pretty much everyone was talking about our insurrection, our yeah. insurrection mm -hmm. yeah. the day afterward. Um, and we saw authoritarian leaders um, in Russia, China, I think Iran, I'm not positive about that, um, use that to sow doubt in American democracy. And if you can sow doubt in American democracy, you can sow doubt in democracy everywhere. Mm -hmm. yep. So that I I'm very curious what the rest of the world is going to look like after this too, because, you know, you hear all this talk about a new world order. Well, that's very possible. Hmm. There, there has in my memory, I can't think of anything since world war two or the cold war, but really world war two um, that has destabilized the world or shaken the entire world at one time, like COVID-19 has. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 And even, even on that point of some kind of world order, I remember I had Netflix, they had had a documentary on his own uh, capitalism, but it was talking about how, you know, a lot of large corporations will use offshore banking in different countries and how just like all the countries kind of lose out on taxes from those. But recently I came across an article stating that um, they might start looking into a digital tax across all like an international digital tax for these companies and i mean it was just an interesting point of kind of all these nations kind of using some type of order to gain control of the situation that's kind of gotten out of hand well on top of that too there's the the issue of misinformation that's become you know we've seen it with QAnon and the election which led to things like the insurrection um, but I think it's interesting 
how you know it literally took the capital being stormed to get these tech platforms to enforce their policies here in the US. They have much stricter right. regulations in other countries, especially in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, like personally, as someone who's a fan of comedy, like I know you guys are, like I'm very wary of I do understand the argument about how like restricting free speech can be a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very big on on everyone being able to say their viewpoint in a respectful environment, even if I personally disagree with it. Um, but I do think there's a difference when violence is a result of it. And you know, I'm glad I'm glad Twitter and Facebook now agree as well. But mm-hmm. it, it took them a long time to reach that conclusion. Yeah, yeah, and and it's it's hard for people. I mean. I would hope it wouldn't be hard for most people to understand, but it seems hard for people to understand the difference between freedom of speech and hate speech. Right. Because you're seeing that from a lot of these groups and individuals on Twitter, and they're like, I can say whatever I want. Well, you, you, freedom of speech comes to a point. You can't you can't be talking about hateful things. And like you said, when violence occurs afterwards, it's just the line has to be drawn. And it, it was sad to see these platforms take so long for them to enforce some of their policies on these groups. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy to me, but I guess, you know, that's the thing. It's like we, throughout this whole time period, I feel like a lot of people have been pointing out these holes in the system, all of these imperfections and been able to say, you know, well, those are the cards that were dealt. Um, But I think now we're really starting to see large scale changes or if not changes, at least a a spotlight being shined down on these things that need to be addressed. Like even the GameStop thing. I know I keep going back to that, but that's what I've been, um, you know, all over the the past few days. And it's like the fact that, uh, you know, the fact that wall street was able to get totally shaken by, you know, a Reddit, a Reddit uh, chat room and these users on Robin hood, like, the online sentiment of eat the rich quote unquote is very real. Um, and I think that that it's hard for me to kind of say it in a clean way here, but it's just the fact that that happened shows that there is, you know, even our financial system, which has already been shaken by the pandemic and managed to bounce back anyway, Again, another conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that they were shaken by these people is, you know, it, it's, it's, there's probably not going to be any long-term impact of this, but who knows, maybe there will be, especially well, with more people entering the market and so on and so right, forth. Right, the CEO is going, going, going to testify in front of Congress now. I mean, whatever, whatever that leads to. But you do wonder, because all on these forums and stuff, everybody's talking about, you know, filing um, civil suits against these companies for restricting the stocks. Um, you know, it's been days and days of Robin restricting these stocks now. And you, you kind of question the motive behind why they're being restricted in the first place. Well, the thing that's tricky about that is that I do understand why people think that that's the case, mm-hmm. but also there's the idea that their clearing houses are preventing them from doing it. Mm-hmm. Because then they would potentially go under 
which could right. destabilize their entire platform. Right. Um, again, like I'm not an expert on this stuff, but I do think that that's an issue that a lot of people don't fully grasp um, because a lot of these things, you know, it, especially in a world of social media dominating everything, I feel like it's very easy to view things as black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just for me, myself personally, I know I'm prone to black and white thinking. Um, but when it comes to the little nuances of that, I feel like that is in itself like a tricky, it's tricky waters to tread. Yeah. It's more complicated than that. Like the GameStop deal isn't the same thing as like Dogecoin, which is literally a meme stock. Whereas the GameStop got big because of underlying financial issues that these people are speculating on. And it's already deflated. I mean, it, as of this morning, it was, it, I mean, it's after the closing bell now, so who knows where, how far down it is, but so like 90. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <Good luck. laughs> there you go. And like, and it, you know, I, I'm somebody who I started investing this year myself. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really much of an investor before that. And I'm not someone who, who day trades and does all this stuff. I just buy like a couple of ETFs just because at some point I want to be able to afford a house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's, a, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. Like when it comes to what happened, yes, these people made a point and people saw that they made a point, but I wonder at what cost, because there are so many people that don't understand how the stock market works. I didn't really truly understand it super well mm. until earlier this year. Cause I read, I took the time to read books on it because I finally had time to during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, I, I, I worry that there are lots of people who were on TikTok cause I like me and we're like, Oh yeah, like I'm going to buy that. Mm-hmm. And then now $200 that they were going to need during an emergency or could need during an emergency potentially is now gone. Right. Yeah. I mean, anyone who didn't see that GameStop is just not a viable company anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was just a fad that was happening and it was quickly going to go away. Um, Probably shouldn't be doing anything in the stock market anyway. One would think. Yeah. And that's the thing too. I do think most people are smart enough to be like, oh, you know, I'm not going to touch that. Yeah. If I don't know what's going on, I'm not going to touch that. I do think that that's the case for most people. But I, I, I do feel bad for anyone who was caught up in the, in the zeitgeist of it yeah. and could have lost money from that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely not a victimless act in any way. Yeah. Um, Dan, why don't, we, uh, why don't we talk about what you do uh, for MSNBC and uh, your role there and maybe like day-to-day responsibilities just so our audience can get a sense of who you are and what you're doing currently. Yeah, sure. Um, so currently I am an associate producer for MSNBC. Uh, in that role, I write segments, gather elements. Um, so that includes like showing graphics, determining what video goes with the script, um, writing the script. Um, I only, I do it for about one portion of my show every day but it can kind of vary on the day to day. It really depends on what's in store. Um, and I started doing that actually remotely earlier this year. 
um, I, or earlier last year. I started doing that in June, and on my first day as a writer, uh, that was the day when the George Floyd protests started. So wow. imagine everything that's happened between then and now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, wow, so, talk about learning on the fly there. Yeah, and uh, and that's the other thing too, right? Like when I was actually thinking about, you know, what I would talk about when, you know, I would do this podcast with you guys, I was really like reflecting and I was like, wow, I never thought that A, I would cover the things that I'm covering now. Just, I didn't think that they would, it never occurred to me that all of this stuff would happen in a year. Um, Two, I never thought I'd be able to do this remotely because, you know, I'm, I'm, producing for cable TV. Um, you don't think of that as a job you can do in your bedroom. No, right. You don't. And, uh, you know, number three, I never thought I'd be doing it in the current place that I'm living in right now. The place I'm living in right now, I like it, but I just, I never thought I would ever be living in Aberdeen, New Jersey <laughs> in my life. It just, it didn't occur to me. So how about we go all the way back, Dan, um, to growing up? I mean, were you, was your, I mean, was your family uh, pretty into news, pretty into politics? Um, and what other interests did you have? I know you were a drummer and eventually, um, you know, became a fan of comedy too. Yeah. So it, it's interesting. Like I, so I'm an only child um, and in my household, both of my parents are very, uh, both of my parents were very opinionated mm-hmm. and for whatever reason, like, I don't totally know why. Um, but you know, my mom would always watch the news. Uh, my dad would always watch like the evening newscast as well. Um, and you know, I'm not really sure what sparked my initial interest in it, but they both like, when I was a kid, I was like, a bigger, chubbier kid. I wasn't athletic. So because of that, I leaned into the arts. I was very interested in reading. I was very interested in music, especially like, you know, you just mentioned I played the drums. I used to play the trumpet. Um, I did like every band option in school and I loved it. And when the time came in high school, I was very interested in like the literary magazine. Um, when I was doing all of that stuff, uh, I'm not really, I'm not totally sure why, but you know, at, at my high school, it was very sports oriented. There really wasn't that many options for the arts aside from what I was already doing. Um, and I became very, just, I kind of doubled down on that. Um, I was friends with people who shared my music taste. We all liked the same TV shows. Um, and we also all work together at the same job. So we all kind of, you guys are just <laughs> attached by the hip 24 seven goon squad. Imagine like that 70s show. That was my friend group essentially. Nice. And many of them are still around today and I, I still see them. So I'm very grateful for them. They're the salt of the earth. They're like my family at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it, I got to college, when I went to Rutgers, I went there because I got into the business school and I knew I wasn't really interested in business, but I did that because I wanted to have a backup and I wanted my parents to be able to sleep at night. <laughs> um, because saying you want to go into a career in journalism is not exactly, you know, 
it's not exactly the most inspiring thing to say or the most heartening thing to say, I guess. Um, yeah. Maybe in this current age, maybe like in decades past, it would have been, I feel like right. journalists were like more revered. Now everyone has like their blog that they write and can be a journalist. Well, and most journalism jobs too, at the time, like when I was in high school, it was in high school and college, the big story about journalism was that it was a dying industry. It was right. like, oh, this local newspaper is laying off its workforce. Um, so it was kind of, you know, my parents were very encouraging, um, but it was still like, you know, you got to have a game plan here. Um, you Did know, you see how the, they were starting to work on the internet, these papers? Like, were you encouraged by that or were you kind of like, some of these are dying off, but I hope I get one of the jobs at a place that's going to stick around. Well, that's, you know, it's funny you say that because when I was at Rutgers, like, don't get me wrong. Like I, I loved all the, all the professors that I had. I'm grateful for the experience that I had there. But at the time, the journalism program was very antiquated. I would, mm -hmm. I, I feel like that's not a harsh word. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, there were lots of things about, like news writing, which is still applicable to online, but it was very much geared to newspapers and radio. Mm -hmm. um, that is very much a dying thing now. Um, and when I was there, like I had a radio show. I, I, I did, I played a lot of music cause I kind of, that was my way of marrying my two interests. Um, on top of that, like I became the editor of the school newspaper there. And when I was there, me and everyone else that I worked with, we were all like friends together. We worked every single night in this office in New Brunswick. Squad 2.0. Squad <laughs> 2.0. And we really worked hard to try and bring the newspaper into the current age. Like we knew we had a challenge by covering you know, hyper-local stories in New Brunswick. But at the same time, New Brunswick is kind of like a mini city in Jersey. Um, so we were able to, you know, incorporate more video. We include like gifts of events that we were covering if there were cool shots of like the basketball game or something. Um, that was also around the time of like the 2016 presidential campaign, which in general was a very divisive time in American history, and that trickled down to college campuses as well. So there were lots of protests, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, even though I was interested in the arts, I guess I viewed journalism, even though I was always interested in it, I always kind of viewed it as a vehicle to still use my creative part of my brain, but also do it in a way where I could potentially get good at it and have job stability. Cause that was another mm -hmm. thing I was worried about too. Mm -hmm. Were there, when you were growing up, were there any, cause I mean, in our lifetime, there has been a lot of, you know, huge events. Was there, was there any particular event where you're like, I could, I, I, I would want to be the person like telling this information or gathering this information or researching this, you know, it, one thing that's weird is that whenever I, people like ask me about like, who's your role model or anything like that, there are plenty of people who are, who are journalists. So I very, very highly respect. And I, I do view them as role models, but when it comes to what I always looked up to when I was younger, 
it was always musicians and comedians. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like James Murphy from LCD Sound System. I loved that there was a bigger dude who could do music that is both dancey but also punk rock. Yeah. Like I loved that. I was obsessed with that. Yeah. Um, uh, there are plenty of comedians too. Like I'm trying to think of a couple off the top of my head, but I also loved Sarah Silverman. I still love her. Um, even right now, like uh, like Chelsea Handler, Fran Lebowitz. Like I've always loved that. You know, they're they're literary. They could write books. Um, but they're also funny and they could still, you know, create that their own world, but tell their stories in a way that's, it crosses several different uh, mediums, whether it's TV uh, or books or stand up or yada, yada. Mm-hmm. I've always had these ideas and I've never had the gumption to act on them. I actually have an idea for stand up that I want to try once we're all done with this pandemic. But until then, I kind of just got to, keep writing them down and hope for the best. But um, I don't know, like I've always been very interested in the arts. And when I got to college, it just seemed like, I don't know. I just, I was living on Rutgers's Bush campus, which is like the science campus. I was kind of the odd man out in my dorm. Everyone was very clicky and, you know, they didn't really talk to anyone beyond their immediate circle of friends much. And many of them went to high school together. So they already knew each other. Uh, Because of that, I was like, okay, well, I need to branch out and do something. For whatever reason, going to the newspaper made the most sense. Um, I decided to double major in journalism and marketing solely because both of them dealt with media. I had no interest in marketing. (laughs) I really didn't. Um, But, you know, when I was at the newspaper and I got to interview people and be out on the street and, you know, uh, talk to people, do research, write these stories, there was like an addicting feeling to seeing my name on the paper Um, Mm -hmm. and seeing like the headline, whatever it was. It could be the dumbest thing, like like a story about a, you know, about a lecture at a science class. But, you know, eventually the stories became more serious and actual hard news. And I think I got kind of the, the reporting bug from that. Mm-hmm. And what what is the reporting bug for you? Is it, you know, being able to identify with the story and, and um, you know, the thrill of kind of being able to write it? Is it like a sense of purpose that comes with informing people? Yeah, I think it's a sense of purpose. Like, you know, I think a lot of people who have a journalism background have this like high and mighty complex, like, oh, you know, I'm doing a public service. And even when they're not. Mm -hmm. um, But I do think that if you have the right intentions and that really is what you're setting out to do, um, I've always admired people who try to educate people. I've always loved like, you know, many of my family members are teachers because of that, like I've always had an appreciation for teachers, with especially now during the pandemic, like I can't imagine doing that job. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the thing, like for the reporting bug, I guess, it's just really cool being able to 
it's like an adventure. You're, you're digging a little bit, you're finding pieces of information, you're finding how they all fit together and you're finding out what's the most important piece of it. Um, and it's also cool too, seeing how people react once you have that information. Like, um, one story I did at Rutgers was about how the athletics department lost a spectacular amount of money. Um, and this was when they were expanding all over. There were plenty of things in the in across Rutgers that were in disrepair. I was living in a dorm at the time that had asbestos falling from the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there were lots of people who were outraged seeing how much money they lost. And it wasn't really, the thing that was interesting about that story was that it wasn't really a hidden secret. Um, it was actually in publicly available uh, information. But because people didn't know about it, and we wrote the story about it, you know, people were aware of it and they were able to make decisions on their own as to whether they thought, um, you know, what they thought the best source of that money or use of that money rather would be. Um, I feel like I'm rambling, but does that make sense? No, yeah, Yeah, that made sense. Yeah, no, I mean, that was the, I mean, the first time where you really felt you wrote a story that can had an impact where you kind of, you know, unlifted the veil on something and let people come to their own assumptions on or own decisions on it. And, you know, it's funny too, because even the dumbest stories like, or not dumbest, because none of these stories were dumb really, but you know, even the most seemingly insignificant ones were still enjoyable. Like there was someone who I was friends with. Um, I actually did a group project with her. Uh, she was an older woman named Marilyn. Um, she was a non-traditional student. She was much older than everyone else. Great she, older woman name too, by the way, Marilyn. Yeah. And she was hilarious. Like she was super nice, super down to earth. Everyone loved her. And, you know, a lot of people in the classes I had with her, because even though it was Rutgers, like the journalism classes were kind of small, small major. Um, you know, a lot of people were kind of wondering like, why is she going to school now? And she, I asked her, I was like, you want me to do a story on you? Like, I'm, I'd, I'd love to, I didn't know her well enough at the time. So I became friends with her through the process of it. But, uh, you know, she previously sang to the Queen of England. She toured with the Crystals, which is like a super, yeah. you know, if you guys know who the Crystals are. Yeah, I know who the Crystals are. No. Yeah, like, yeah. they're a very famous, um, are they Motown? I don't know if yeah. they're Motown. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Motown, but like a pop band from back in like the '60s, right? Yeah, okay. and you you 100 will would recognize some of the songs. Yeah, you've heard okay. a lot of their songs. Yeah, and like when she told me that, I was like, "Yo, like you sang to the Queen of England, and now we're doing a group project." You know, it's just <laughs> it even things like that. Um, I also interviewed uh, Marissa, the lead singer from Screaming Females, um, which is like a pretty big band yeah um you know she was talking about just how challenging it was to come up in the new brunswick music scene because you know she was coming up during a time when basement shows weren't exactly as accepted as they are now like they still get shut down now but i guess i guess it was harder for her at the time like i i really am very interested in getting to the human side of things and i feel like there's something about that that gives me fulfillment and that mm-hmm. still extends to my current job today. Yeah. And uh, there's one interview in particular I wanted to 
Harpon, while you're at Rutgers, you're editor-in-chief, and you get the opportunity to interview Obama, who's a president at the time. Um, (laughs) And it's a 15-minute interview. I mean, what what was the process like of requesting the interview, and then what was your reaction when you found out that you actually got the interview? Did Obama text you? Be like, yeah, I'll do it. He didn't, but his people texted me. Oh, wow. But the the thing, you know, it's funny, like, the thing about this is that it's a story that I always wanted to talk about, but there's no way to bring it up without sounding pretentious and right. self-absorbed. Yeah, you, mm-hmm. can't, you can't just be in a c- casual conversation and be like, well, that time I interviewed uh, President Obama. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, somebody's um, talking about, oh, I remember Obama, and you're like, actually, I actually interviewed him. So yeah, when, I I, when we talked yeah. about that, you know, his answer was quite interesting. Yeah, you would just come off as an asshole. Are, are either of you guys, like, even if you don't make TikToks, do you guys make – or do you guys watch TikTok at all? Not really. Just no. I only when TikTok videos like come up on Instagram. Like I don't have a TikTok. I don't go oh. on. Well, there's a trend on there where someone will be like, "Tell me blank," and someone will stitch it by like cutting the video, and then they'll tell their story. Right. There's there's one like where, tell me blank without actually telling me blank. Is that yes? That yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's one where someone is like, "Oh, you know, tell me your craziest one in a million story. Like you can't believe this happened to you." This is my craziest one in a million story. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I mean, you sat next to someone who knew the Queen of England, so I mean, you're true. practically royalty. So that's a very. Don't good sell point. your show short. <laughs> that's a very. You know, you're right. That's a very yeah. good point. Yeah. But w- from now on, uh, when you introduce yourself to people, you tell them those two things. Right. Obviously, Queen of England, like, President Obama. That's it. Yeah. Don't need to know. Don't need to know the rest of my background. Like, that's it. No, that's it. Yeah. Um, when, so I, I guess I'll start off. It's a long story. I apologize. I'll try and keep it brief. Yeah, that's fine. That's, we want to hear the story. That's why we invited you on here to hear good stories, man. Well, thank you. Um, so it started off uh, the day when it was announced that he was going to be the commencement speaker at Rutgers. I was in the student center at uh, the Rutgers Livingston campus. And like when I was the editor in chief at the time, you know, even though I worked nights, so like I went to class in the morning and then I worked every night from 4 PM to about one to 2 AM. And cause it was a full-time job. It wasn't just like a club. Like right. I actually, we actually did work that we had to handle money, all sorts of things like, yeah. I mean, in between trying to figure out the digital side, it sounded like you guys are basically in a startup environment. It pretty much was in retrospect. Yeah, you're right. And when, when it was announced that he was going to be coming to Rutgers, I was like, you know what, whatever, let's just see if this happens. Um, I emailed the white house press office from the Targum or the name of the newspaper is the daily Targum. Mm -hmm. I emailed them from my account. And I said, hi, my name is Dan Corey. I'm the editor-in-chief of Daily Targum. We, you know, you know, we just saw the news that he's going to be speaking. You know, obviously this is a long shot, but we would love to put in a request for an interview with him or somebody from the White House. You know, we'll see what we can get. <laughs> yeah. I, and this was sent with absolutely no expectation whatsoever. I figured, you know, it's the White House. They've got a lot more important things to worry about, which they, mm. they do. <laughs> and you're like, maybe we can get an intern. Yeah. Right. Maybe the guy that gets it, the coffee for everybody. 
Right. I was like, okay, you know, maybe there'll be some sort of interesting thing. Who knows? I get an email back telling me to dial the White House switchboard and they give me the number for it. I call the number and when I dial in, there are all sorts of questions to verify my identity. Like you name any type of personal information, I had to give it. Favorite Um, Pokemon game, yellow or red? Yeah, (laughs) it was just like... (laughs) I mean, there was, I forget, I forget exactly what the questions were, but I remember there was one that was like, it was so distant in my past that I couldn't even properly remember. (laughs) I think it was like my first street address. Mm -hmm. Um, And when, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was, but it was something like that. Eventually, you know, I got to the end of the phone and it was like, okay, you know, we, it was kind of like a ping pong back and forth. There were lots of steps to it. Eventually it led to me being invited to the first and now potentially only because it didn't happen under the Trump administration college reporter day. Um, This was where people from all over the country, like newspaper editors, you know, if you were in campus media across the country uh, you know, I'm not sure what the vetting process was, but I wasn't even vetted for it. Like I was just offered an inv- extended an invitation to come. Hmm. And I was like, Oh, like that's sick. Yeah. And when, <laughs> and they said, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wait, and did like, we vet this guy? <laughs> and, and when I went to the office, sick, later, right? and w- when I went to the office later that night, I was like, Oh, like, Hey guys, like I'm going to this, like, you know, I don't know what's going on, but this is cool. And people are like, yeah, like that's sick. You know, we're all like just whatever. Cause we're trying to chug along and get the paper out for the next day. Like more important things than that were happening for yeah. at least for us more immediately important. things. Right. Um, then, uh, you know, my dad was very kind and offered to drive me down there to DC. So we drove down there you know, me and my dad had like a nice, you know, father, son, couple days together. Um, in the morning. <laughs> also, I was thinking though, like what you're like, dad, I, I got an interview. Like I get to go, or did you know you had the interview with Obama yet? At no. This point? Okay. No. You're like, no. I get to go to this convention. He goes, sounds good. Grab a bus ticket. the thing is too like i think the other thing that makes this particularly like actually sentimental was because um about a month before this happened he was laid off Mm -hmm. and this was when he you know he worked for this company i won't get into the details of it because i don't want you know Mm -hmm. but um he worked there for decades and you know it was a tough time for my family And it was something, it was a bright spot in a dark time. Mm -hmm. And so when we were, when we went down to DC, you know, we're like, yeah, like, we'll just, you know, see the sites, whatever. Um, I skipped class. I was like, cool. I don't have to be in business (laughs) classes now. Like, this is great. (laughs) And um, uh, the morning of this college reporter day, um, you know, I woke him up. I was like, Hey, like, you got to take me to, you know, the white house. And then that in itself, I was like, Holy shit, I'm going to the white house. (laughs) Um, we were stuck in traffic 
and I was like bugging and like yeah. sweating in my suit. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, of course I'm going to be in the white house, like looking like a pig, <laughs> you know, just gross. Um, but I managed to make it in time, uh, go through the security. We go into the office buildings that are next to the white house and they have like all sorts of like little workshops that we were doing. Um, we met the secretary of education uh, we met Valerie Jarrett, who was a senior uh, advisor to uh, President Obama. Uh, we got to ask her some questions, just, you know, stuff about like student loans, mostly things that were like college educated. Right. How, how many how many college reporters would you say went on this? It was enough to fit in the briefing room. Okay. So, and the briefing room was small. Like it, when you see it on TV, it looks big. But in yeah. person, it's actually a very small enclosed space. So it's right. just like any room that you see in television. Yeah. No, honestly, I, I'm not even trying to joke around. I feel like the briefing room is probably as big as my combined living room and kitchen in my apartment right now. No mm-hmm. kidding. It's really not big. And Zach, I thought you were just going to end with that with, yeah, just, en- just like any room. Just yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, it's like any room you yeah. ever see. Yeah. All rooms are smaller than they appear. <laughs> One thing that was a real trip, too, was that they had people who worked for the Obama administration. At, like, if you were, if they were an alumni of your school, they went out of their way during their day to talk to you. That's oh, very wow. cool. This Which sounds was, like a great event where they no, really tried to make you involved. It's not like they just brought reporters here to just, like, oh, yeah, hang around. They treated, they were very, everyone was extremely kind. Like, you know, nobody ever thought, like nobody ever treated us like babies. Like, oh, you want to be a reporter someday? There was nothing like that. They were very respectful, professional, whole nine yards. And, um, you know, I was talking with these people who were from Rutgers as well. And I was like, okay, well, this is sick. Like I'm meeting these people. Like what? Um, you know, they gave me their business cards. I saved some of them because I was like, holy shit, I'm meeting people that work at the white house. Mm. Um, and you know, it was one of those days too, where like, you know, I know a lot of people talk about like imposter syndrome or whatever, which is a very real thing. But when I was there, I was really very acutely aware of like, I'm lucky to be here. I cannot believe that I'm here right now. Um, you know, like this is insane. And eventually, um, and also when I went there too, I did go there with the intention of requesting an interview. Mm. Um, Cause when I submitted that interview request initially, I was never really given a straight answer. Um, it was like, okay, like, well, we'll move the, there was clearly a ball moving, mm-hmm. but there was no straight, like, yes, we're going to give you an interview. Um, so I was there and I was like, well, I'm here in person. Like, let's see what happens. Right. And they had a mock press briefing in the briefing room with uh, Josh Ernest, who was the press secretary at the time. And after he took a couple of questions, President Obama came in the room and came up to the lectern and started taking questions from reporters. Wow. And, you know. What's it feel like when he walks into a room? Oh, it was surreal. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is that the whole, and the whole day too, everyone was saying, you know, oh, like when is, 
is, is Obama going to be here? You know, mm-hmm. is he going to surprise us? And we were regularly told by people all day, like he really wants to be here, but like, you know, understandably he's the president, like yeah. he's busy. And we were all like, yeah, like, of course he's the president. <laughs> right. Um, but when he came in the room, I mean, the whole room was like just shocked. Just did they just nobody really thought he was going to be there, right? Um, and it was you know, it was surreal the whole day being there anyway, but that was really like, oh my god, like we're in the White House and the president is right here in front of us, yeah. I feel like that had to be one of those moments where you can just feel like this almost the static in the air when you kind of walk in and everybody's just like, whoa, he's actually here. Well, the thing that also happened at the same time was my friends at the Targum were in the office that day and they were watching a live stream of this press briefing. Um, you know, Oh and, wow. They were actually like streaming it. Yeah. They were streaming it and watching it. Wow. And we had a group chat and it was blowing up and I kept <laughs> on my phone buzzing. Like, like everyone's, you know, it was almost like time stopped. I know it sounds yeah. like, I know it sounds really corny to say that, but it really was how it felt. And like a little kid who really wants to get the teacher to call on him. Yeah. Um, I really was like really trying to get his attention. And Do you remember the first question someone asked him? Cause I feel like the first question just had to be like bad. Like <laughs> I think I was the first. Oh no. <laughs> no, no. I think that was the first question. Wow. Like, no did I, you I, ask I, a good one or did you pull like a Chris Farley and be like, remember when you were, gave that speech at the DNC? <laughs> that, was, that was cool. Yeah. It's funny you say that because afterward, after this all happened, um, have you ever seen the Chris Farley sketch where he's interviewing Paul McCartney? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. yeah, that's what yeah, I was yeah, referencing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, "Oh, like, oh, so what's it like to be a Beatle?" Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's how yeah. I felt like. Yeah. And when when you know what was bizarre about it, but cool, was that I really thought he called on the guy behind me, and the guy behind me thought he did too, and I was like, yeah. "Oh, okay, like I'll be respectful. Like I'm not gonna." you know, do a whole thing about it. And president Obama was like, Oh no, like you in the, in the tie. Mm-hmm. And I was like, which makes me wonder if it was like a staged thing. I don't know. But that particular detail was very, that stood out to me. Mm. Why do you think it was staged? What, what makes you feel like that? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it was, but there's the reason why I think it's a possibility was simply because I was so sure that he called on the guy behind me. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it might not have been. It might be right. just be being crazy. I don't know. When he, he, he the guy, said, no, the I'm talking to you, Dan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he just turns into like Santa Claus and just knows your name and everything about you. <laughs> well, the th- I mean, the thing <laughs> is, they knew gift. that I wanted an interview because I submitted the request through them. Like mm-hmm. his press people, his press people, they all, they all knew who I was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I would, uh. So they could make the connection between the paper and then when they saw you in person. I mean, right. And, and I didn't apply to go to this event. Other people applied to go. Oh, they invited oh, you. Right. right. And right. you were you were wearing a tie. Right. And I was I was rocking that tie. <laughs> I was also rocking the three sixties underneath my armpits, but uh, yeah. they didn't see that. Yeah. 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 Um, Except when you raised your hand. <laughs> right. Right. Did you do like the the half raise, like <laughs> yeah, no, shoulder no. in? <laughs> no, just bold double hands. <laughs> 
And, but when, you know, when he called on me, I was nervous because literally like it's a small room. It was a little bit hot in there. Mm-hmm. Maybe it wasn't, maybe I was just being crazy and nervous, but the sound of all these cameras clicking just and turned yeah. like right <laughs> on me. And on top of that, because all my friends slash coworkers were watching it, my phone was, my phone was blowing up, like, like going off. And when I said to him, like, it was also a crazy time too, then because our news, we just had to fight to keep our newspaper afloat. Like um, at Rutgers, you know, the newspaper has to be reaffirmed every three years. So it's actually separate from the university. So they don't exercise editorial control over it, but students fund it with a uh, potentially refundable fee on their term bill. So everyone gets billed like 10 bucks on their term bill each semester that goes to the Targum. But if they want the money back, they can request it and we'll give it to them. Mm. Um, But that was a very chaotic time because, you know, I was spending my days not only putting out the paper, but also going in front of lecture halls, giant lecture halls, like 400 people say, explaining to them why they needed to keep the newspaper. So I was exhausted. And like, I went on a whole tangent when he called on me and I was like, listen, we just won this thing. We're now going to be around for 150 years. You're going to be coming to the campus. Can we interview you? And, you know, and that's the first question. That was the first question. You put the president of the United States on the spot. I did put him on the spot. Wow. And that takes guts, man. Good for you. And I, you know, almost shit myself because I was so nervous. Not in reality, but, you know, mentally I was like, what did I just do? (laughs) (laughs) And if you look at video of it too, um, you could see like people sitting in the front row being like, oh my God, did he just do that? (laughs) <laughs> you know, we gotta I got to get this footage. Yeah. yeah. Oh, did you, did they just ask him that? Um, and he was very, president Obama was very gracious and he said yes, which was wow. like crazy. Did he just say yes and like move on next question? Yes. He, he said, the only thing he says, I forget exactly what he said, I'm but sure. he said something along the lines of, uh, you know, he said something like, oh, like you're putting me on the spot here. But, you know, I think he said something like I'm inclined to say yes, or I'm disposed to say yes, something like that, mm-hmm. where it was like, it was more or less a yes. Mm-hmm. Right? But he could also get but, out of it. If yeah. He, so. But still the politician's way of <laughs> yeah. trying to say, right, well, right. he's the president. He knows what he's yeah. doing. I mean, he was definitely, I don't, I think he was caught off guard. I'm pretty sure he was good for you. Um, and I was on, and I was like, okay, insane. So yeah. I was still there, um, was there throughout the rest of it, trying to stay in the moment while also getting my phone to stop going crazy. Cause my phone crashed. Like my phone died. Oh, sure. There were that many notifications. Was everyone else's question after you the same thing? Just like, can I also have an interview? If you're just, <laughs> if you're, if you're <laughs> just throwing, <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure away. somebody else did that. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not positive. And it's funny too, because I'm actually in a Facebook group with these people still. Mm. And we don't, you know, we're not super close, but every now and then like people will post and be like, how's everyone doing? Like, what's yeah. up? Mm-hmm. Um, 
so I'm like, I'm very grateful that we all like decided to connect and like make this group. Cause it's right. Crazy. Except for that one guy who copycatted you, he got kicked out of the group. <laughs> I I'm not positive, but I do remember, like, I do remember somebody attempting something like that. And Obama being like, or if not him, somebody else in the room being like, Oh, you like nice try. Like yeah, that, yeah. at that point, mm-hmm. everything that happened between me asking the question and leaving was like a blur. Yeah, sure. Um, after that, I was, I previously set up like a meeting with, uh, an alumni from Rutgers, uh, named Herb Jackson. He's a really nice guy. He's a reporter uh, at Roll Call now. Um, I met him at the National Press Club. And when I went there, you know, it wasn't that full of people. But the people who were there were like, oh, my God. Like, did you just do that? (laughs) And I was like, yeah. (laughs) I think I did. I think I did. Yeah. (laughs) Like, And I was like bugging. I was like, I need a drink. Like, you know, it was like a nice time catching up with them. Um, and then, you know, I talked with my mom and dad and that was like a very proud moment. Uh, you know, I wound up going like some soul food place with my dad afterward. And it was like a, just a really all around, like, I mean, that really had to feel, um, very validating. Yeah. And really, I mean, especially, you know, with the tough time with, you know, your dad getting laid off and then you having a fight for all that money, this really had to feel like, uh, the accumulation of a lot of hard work. Yeah, triumph. It literally, I felt like David beating Goliath. Like, I'm not mm. even trying to front. Like, I felt like the baddest bitch. When that <laughs> <happened>. <laughs> and um, it was just next level crazy. And like, then yeah. I, got, I got interview requests to talk wow. to people. Right, makes um, sense. I didn't take that many of them in retrospect. I kind of wish I did, but I was just like, and, oh, and also, by the way, this was around the time of finals. Oh, cool. And I was like, yeah. worried about failing a finance class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you couldn't tell the professor, hey, I, I'm preparing for this Obama interview. I'm hanging out at the White House. Yeah. At Rutgers, they're like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they don't care. Like, yeah. And, uh, and so then came preparation for it. And when I asked it, I asked it, can our editorial board interview you? Mm. So I wasn't trying to just be like, oh, it's just me. Like, I really wanted the entire editorial board mm-hmm. to talk to him. Because everyone that I worked with, all of them, salt of the earth, they're, they're great people, but they're whip smart. And I knew that I could not do it on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had a whole back and forth with the White House. Uh, originally, it was going to be the editorial board. Then it was going to be, you know, choose the five most essential people. And I felt horrible doing that. Like absolutely horrible doing that. Cause you were running. So you would have had to single handedly pick them all then. Yeah. And I felt like a schmuck doing that, but they, it, you know, they weren't open to having the whole board and eventually it, it wound up being okay. It's going to be you doing it solely on the phone but you can bring you and the five people you selected to meet him oh. before his speech. Wow. So that's what wound up happening. Here's a fun little fact. Um, I think it was either the night before or the night or two nights before 
the interview. Um, I covered a Bernie Sanders rally at Rutgers. Um, so that was in itself, like just, it puts you in a very particular moment in time. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked to people on the editorial board. I even talked with my mom, just like ideas for questions. I had a bunch of them printed out and I was in my radio station uh, where I had my music show. And while another DJ was on the air, um, we had the White House call through our request line. (laughs) So the same line that construction workers would call me and ask me to play house music on (laughs) is the same line that President Obama is calling on. Oh, my God. And on top of that, the board that we used to mix it, um, you know, our, our broadcast administrator, Mike Pavlichko, uh, did that for me. It was very, very kind of him to do that. Um, I'm still grateful for that. He did it on the super old board that rumor has it, Billy Idol once snorted Coke off of. Whoa. <laughs> so you can imagine how scrappy this is. Yeah. Um, um, so I'm talking with uh, President Obama. Is that the first thing you told Obama? Hey, fun fact, Obama. Well, the th- I was only given a 10-minute window. Uh, so mm-hmm. now you couldn't, couldn't mess around. I was like trying to be like, okay, like... Boom, I feel like I would boom, waste boom. all my time just messing around with Obama. Yeah. Well, I, it was tricky because there were so many questions to ask. And I really went in with the mindset that, you know, I don't want to ask him questions that every other news outlet is going to ask. And like you guys wanted, did this live over, over the air? It was not live. No. It was, uh, it was pre-recorded, but it was done. Like it was, it was, it was recorded live to tape. So right, there was right. mi- very minimal editing. Um, but I wanted to ask questions that were a little bit more off the beaten path. Uh, and it did make news on a few, on a few fronts. One was that it was the first time a a sitting U.S. president ever endorsed a national election holiday. Um, On top of that, it was, you know, it was one of the few times where he addressed his administration's prosecution of whistleblowers. That was a very big, like, transparency issue that people have with the Obama administration, and he defended it. Um, That in itself was relatively newsworthy. And then on top of that, he, I was asking him about, um, I actually asked him oddly enough, and this is what I am most proud of. I'm not going to lie. Um, I said to him, you know, are you worried about these working class voters who are defecting from the democratic party? Like, you know, are, are you worried that there are people who are more in like the Bernie Sanders camp who are more worried about, you know, more systemic issues like like pensions not working out, like things of that sort. I forget the exact question, but I gave him an opportunity to speak to those people. Mm-hmm. And about six months later, those same people I was asking about delivered the White House to Donald Trump. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of that, uh, this was, I'm not sure if it was his first comments, but it was among his first comments it was like right around the time when Donald Trump became the Republican nominee effectively. Like even though he wasn't formally nominated at the convention, 
at that point, Ted Cruz and John Kasich had both dropped out of the Republican primary. So it was Donald Trump, last man standing. So he said something along the lines of like, oh, the Republican Party is going to issue a corrective. And like, we'll move on from that. Hmm. And we know how that turned out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, it was just, it was extremely surreal. When I left the building after talking with him, I was like, holy shit. I went, uh, I went back to my office and I don't even remember what I did after that, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. It was, it was such a crazy thing. And I remember people telling me like, what are you going to do now? Like, I remember there were people who were saying to me like, Oh, you, you just did the, the thing that people wait years to do. Yeah. Are you going to run for president? I am not going to run for president. No. Going back to the Obama interview, I did want to ask you, were there any, because I mean, you probably got lost in the moment a little bit. Was there any questions that you didn't ask that you wish you had or questions that you were planning on to ask and didn't ask or anything that came up after you where you were like, damn, I wish I would have yes. maybe talked about. Yeah, I'm sure. Yes. Anything um, in particular you remember? I was very, one thing that I really wanted to ask and I was very laser focused on it, but in the heat of the moment, trying to, trying to get as much into those 15 minutes I forgot to ask about immigration. Um, And that was a very big deal because around the time, like especially in New Brunswick, there were lots of stories about, you know, ICE officers going to people's doors and taking people away from their families. Like that was a very big deal at the time. And like, you know, immigration is still a hot button issue now. And it became more of a hot button issue during the 2016 campaign as well with when Donald Trump was saying to build the wall and so on and so forth. Um, but that's one thing that I wish I asked about because, yeah. you know, that that's such a nuanced issue and it's such, I, you know, I don't, I don't like, I don't like focusing on things that are divisive if I can avoid it. Or if I want to talk about something divisive, I like to do it in a nuanced, intelligent way that actually adds to the conversation. Um, and I feel like that was my opportunity to do it. And I wish that I remembered to take it. But I'll tell you what, Dan, I mean, it, you know, it's really interesting hearing you reflect back on it and seeing some of those questions that you asked or even that one you had in mind where it's like, you know, the working class supporting Bernie Sanders and then Trump getting... Um, you know, going to be the primary nominee and then the immigration where it's like, you know, you really seem to have your finger on the pulse of what was happening. And also I was wondering, like, did those questions stem, like you said, with immigration in New Brunswick, you're seeing it like, did that stem from your reality of seeing working class people go in that way? And I mean, part of it did. I, I mean, I know that the question where I was mentioning about like, you know, working class voters, like, the widening wealth gap. Um, I forget exactly how I phrased the question, but I think it was something about like, are you worried about these people who are disillusioned that this could swing the election? It was something like that. Mm -hmm. And that absolutely had to do with my reality. Um, You know, I wasn't the only one. And, you know, this, this says nothing about my political ideology. I keep that to myself, Mm -hmm. but I know for sure that like in my own extended family, there are people of all political views and that is the common denominator 
for a lot of people, regardless of their political ideology. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think even though I was trying to think bigger picture beyond myself, there was definitely there's definitely something there that made me want to ask that question more than others, for sure. Yeah, and I would I would think you know being the Rutgers paper, you probably felt like a sense of responsibility to maybe bring to the forefront when you have someone like that, a platform like that to talk about local issues. And the thing is too, on top of that, and I'm not going to lie, this is uh, a selfish notion, but after months of, of talking to people, trying to convince them that a newspaper is worth having and, you know, keep in mind Rutgers is, is older than the country. Um, you know, there are, aside from the Ivy leagues, like if, if Rutgers wasn't a state school, it would be an Ivy league most likely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it was very validating to be able to be like, Oh, you, you didn't want us around still. Mm-hmm. Well, we got the president, <laughs> you know, like there was definitely an element of that in my thinking, which, right. you know, it, regardless of whether that was the quote unquote right way to think, probably not, but that was definitely, that was at least a corner of my headspace. And I'm sure you felt like they just, you know, we just saved the paper and let's show them like what we can do and why they did this. And I, I would, I would think like, don't fuck it up either too. Well, that's the other thing during what, like one of the reasons why I probably forgot to ask that immigration question was because when I was talking with him on the phone, I tried to get this idea out of my head, but I was very aware, like, oh, this is the biggest interview you will ever have in your life. Mm-hmm. You got to get it right. Yeah. Um, you yeah, know, you're, I talk- pressure. you're talking about this interview right now? This one right now. Yeah. yeah. After yeah. school program. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I was, but the thing is too, I was thinking like, I'm just trying to, right now I'm trying to get my career off the ground. Um, I can't wait know. to put in my LinkedIn bio interviewed someone who interviewed Obama. I'm going to, yeah, I'm, I'm using this big time. And that's the thing too. Like I'm, I have no doubt. I have no doubt that I wouldn't be here now where I am. If it wasn't for that, I do think it opened doors for me. I do. Um, I never worked in a professional media environment before that. Um, the most I did before that was I worked for a local radio station here at the Jersey shore. And that job included like, uh, like, you know, cleaning up pee at the boardwalk radio station, like stuff like that. You yeah. know, um, most of my work experience was more in that. Right. Uh, vein. Did it feel did it feel like it kind of fell in your lap? It doesn't sound like it fell in your lap because you did so much work at Rutgers to save the paper and you were, you know, very instrumental in that. But did it feel like it was like a gift or did it feel like hard work paid off? Both. Yeah. It, it, I mean, at the time, because there was so much crap going on in my life, it felt like um, a lot. It, it felt like it was, you know, hard work paying off. But at the same time, in retrospect, when I think of how much work I had to do in terms of talking to the White House and going down to D.C., 
you know, I'm sure there are people that have done, who have put so much more effort into getting an interview, mm-hmm. a big interview than I did for that. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I think yeah. it's a common theme that keeps popping up with, with certain people we've talked to where you, you know, you can do as much work and be the hardest worker, but it does unfortunately take a little bit of luck for some of these things to come to fruition. You guys were asking me before about, you know, who were my idols, who were people that I looked up to. One thing I've always done, and I still do, is I love reading memoirs of people that I have a lot of respect for. So that's how like I got into Chelsea Handler. Um, I've read uh, Patty Smith's book, you know, all of these stories of, of people in their humble beginnings. I don't know what, whatever my life is going to hold, who knows, but I've always liked reading stories like that. Mm-hmm. To me, the, their real life stories are more interesting than any fiction I could read. And I think that's also part of the reason why I like journalism too, but beside the point, yeah, all of these stories seem to have, to your point, uh, to your point, Connor, like they have this same trajectory where it's like you're working really hard, you're doing the damn thing, and you're working hard so that when you hit that point where the opportunity comes, you're ready for it to take it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm not sure I necessarily worked hard enough to get that. <laughs> but you know, it I it's hard for me to to underestimate or to overestimate how difficult it was even keeping the paper afloat. Like for, for months I would not get sleep. Oh, and I almost forgot this part too. About a month after the interview or not even a month, like a week or two, I was hospitalized. And when I was hospitalized, it was from exhaustion. Really? For months I would not get any sleep. And this is a week or two after the interview you said? Yep. That was the first time in months when I could truly rest. Yeah. Wow. And when I was able to truly rest, I got like a 105 degree fever. I went to the clinic. And when I went to the clinic, they were like, you need to go to the ER. And when I was driving to the ER, I was like seeing things like not like, not like actual delusions in my head, mm-hmm. but I was seeing like weird squiggly lines that weren't there on the road. And like, it was scary. Was it just, yeah. I mean, I mean, so you must've just been riding off a straight adrenaline for weeks or months. And then, so you think it was just like sleep deprivation that just yeah stress, I guess. Wow. And I know like when people say like, Oh, it's for, for exhaustion. Like I know it's like some people roll their eyes at, but ever since then I've made my sleep a priority. Cause like that, that really did scare me straight. That yeah. episode. Well, one of our other buddies who was actually a journalist, he was talking about how he, when he didn't even realize he was overworking himself like you were until he had a panic attack in the middle of driving on the road to go to one of the games. And he's never had a panic attack before or since, but that same thing of just having overworked himself so hard. And then it all just kind of meeting Coming an end that, point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Yeah. Um, and, well, I wanted to, Go ahead, Zach. Well, you, well yeah. I wanted to ask, uh, like, I guess, so it was a couple of weeks after. I mean, how long did that high from that interview last until then? I guess it was just the crash and then. Lasted for a few weeks. It was mm-hmm. 
Because, I mean, the thing that was wild about it was that it was around the time of, like, finals and stuff. So, um, you know, when I got back around that time, too, I also started dating someone. So Mm. that was another big thing. (laughs) Dude, how are you juggling all this, man? I don't know how. Mm -hmm. But, like, you know, like, we're not together anymore. But the person who I was with, like, we were very close friends at the time. So we kind of took the leap of faith around then. Um, on top of that, it was finals. So I was like trying to pass my classes, um, you know, moving out of the dorm and everything. It was just perfect. storm. It was a perfect storm of crazy shit that happened at the same time. Mm Um, yeah, I mean it, I rode that wave for about two weeks, I think two weeks again, time's a blur. (laughs) And when I had that crash too, like the funny thing as well was that I went back home to my parents' place and a bunch of people who I'm friends, my, my friends who I was mentioning earlier to you guys, they were like, Oh my God, like everyone's home. Like, let's go to the bar. Like, you know, and the bar that we normally go to is right across the street from the hospital. So I was like, I was like, I literally texted them back me in the hospital gown with like the, you know, that breath thing that you need to yeah. use mm-hmm. to like determine if your lungs are working. Mm-hmm. I was bored laying in the hospital bed and I was like, do you think I can go to the bar like this? <laughs> <laughs> but it was again, like I know when I say like, Oh, you know, one in a million story, I cannot believe that any of this happened to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, have you taken any steps since then to make sure that something doesn't happen like that again, that you don't, you know, overwork yourself and real, you know, maybe you um, can start to identify signs of, of, you know, working too hard or pushing yourself too hard. Yeah. I feel like it's a comp, like, like Zach said, we, we had another Jersey salon who's had a similar experience. And I think a lot of people have those experience where they go, Oh, I need to like slow down and, you know, take care of myself first. Yeah. Have you taken any steps to uh, make sure that doesn't happen? Or Ever since that's happened, I don't care what people say to me. If I'm tired, I'm going to bed. Yeah, like, there you go. I, I, there are people who, especially now that I have like early hours, sometimes people will text me at like nine at night and I won't answer them if I'm dead. And they're like, oh, like you don't stay up at all? And I'm like, no, I'm tired. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, I... I've made it a point to prioritize my sleep since then. Um, my habits back then were very unhealthy as well. Like I gained a lot of weight and really I only lost most of it this year. Um, Mm. but you know that when it comes to like living a healthier lifestyle or whatever too, you know, now it's like, it's kind of weird because we're in the middle of a pandemic and we're stuck at home and I'm working from home, but I'm very fortunate that, you know, at my job, um, they're very encouraging of taking a break if you need it. Um, Mm. and it's not just like, you know, Oh, take a break if you need it. It's very, it's, it's sincere, which Mm -hmm. I really do appreciate. And I do take them up on that when I, when I feel like I need to. Mm. Um, but it's also kind of tricky because like, for example, like earlier this year I had news don't stop news. Don't stop. Number one, Number two, this year I was in kind of a financial bind where I was paying rent for two places at once. 
Um, and because of that, I really needed the money. So mm-hmm. I was working all sorts of doubles and so on and so forth to catch up with it. But, you know, it's something that comes with time, figuring out how to strike the balance. I'm not very big on balance, but I want to be big on balance. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, Dan has an incredible threshold to, uh, for lack of sleep and for how hard he works. I mean, when we were in the page program together, there would be times where I would want to bitch about, you know, working a long shift, like some kind of like, I don't know, 14 hour, 16 hour day. That was like one of those extra long ones. And I, but then you would look at Dan who's commuting what an hour and a half each way, every single day too. And he's doing the same shift as you. And I would just be like, just about ready to bitch. And I'd look (laughs) over and I'd see Dan there. And I'm just like, I can't complain about anything. (laughs) I know you would have, I know you would have sat there for it, but I was just like, it's just like, just, tack on three or four more hours to whatever I'm doing. That's what Stan's doing. Well, the thing that was crazy about that too, was that that period of time when we were working those 14 hour shifts, like, you know, even then, I don't know how I did that either because now I get exhausted from the slightest thing. Mm -hmm. And back then I would wake up at 4am, catch the 4.30 bus, get get to work at 6am, we would start work at like 6.30, I think, work until 8.30. Mm-hmm. I would run to Port Authority. Oh, only two hours? That's not bad. <laughs> oh, no, 8.30 p.m. <laughs> run, run to Port Authority to catch the bus. Um, if I didn't make it, I'd be screwed. Um, and when I would get home, it would be like 10 at night. I would like eat something probably disgusting and then pass out and then wake mm. up six hours later and do it again. Yeah. You're talking 16, 17 hours right there. Yeah. yeah. I feel like, bad for anyone who has to go to the port authority multiple times a day. That sounds <laughs> literally sounds like a nightmare. Port authority is a shithole, but, um, it's the, the it's a trade off. I could have done the bus or the train mm-hmm. with the train. Penn station is so much nicer than port authority. But the experience of being on the bus is so much better yeah. than being on the train. I would just put on Sade in my ear and I'd knock out. Did, did awesome. less people take the bus? Because I've, I've done, my dad worked in New York. So like I would go up with him and do, you know, the commute. And I mean, it was, you had to be a warrior on the train to get a spot and to even get in the door sometimes. Was That's the, right. Your dad, your dad did that commute for a while too. Yeah. I don't, I don't, yeah. Well, he, his we're in South Jersey. So it's, you know, like two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah. yeah I don't know how he did that. That's crazy. Yeah. He's yeah, been he doing that, that for a long time. Well, right? he did yeah. that for years. Yeah. He, he works from home now, but he did it. For, I don't know how he did it. I would go up with him on like take your kid to work day and stuff like that, or just to go in New York. And it was like, you, you couldn't just like, casually take the train like it was it was a fight Mm -hmm. well that's the thing too because like when when we were doing those hours zach like the thing that made that bad was how long our shift was it wasn't necessarily the commute Mm -hmm. like like for for your dad connor like i know there are lots of people from south jersey who do that commute or used to before the pandemic i I, that was always a total mystery to me how people did that yeah Mm -hmm. I i did it he did. He would like on Thursdays or Fridays. You can grab beer in Penn Station. He would grab beer on the train. I'm sure that made it a little. Yeah, that's easier. a well-deserved <laughs> beer. <laughs> uh, I will say, even though I don't miss commuting, one thing I do miss was being like 
super winded at the end of the day and being like, all right, I'm going to treat myself to like an Annie Ann's cinnamon pretzel, <laughs> or something like that, you yeah. know? Yeah. But, um, you did bring up that one of your, you know, after the Obama interview happened and that was over, you, you did bring up, I think it was one of your friends said like, what, what's next? Did, was that something you were asking yourself? Because I mean, it's a big, like you said, some journalists spend their whole careers trying to get that interview and you got it very young. So it kind of, you know, did you, were you worried? Like, shit, what am I going to do now? Well, the thing is, I, the thing that was just interesting to me was that I guess there are people who are, who are in my shoes now, I think, and I'm not saying like specifically where I work, but I think people who are, who are like younger in journalism in general, who have that like vision in their head of getting that. Mm. I don't necessarily have that vision of like landing the top tier guest now. Um, I have the idea of making more stuff focused on ordinary people and doing like deep dives on issues that affect people. Cause yeah. I, do you feel like it was almost a good thing that that happened so early? Cause now like, yes, you didn't have to focus mm-hmm. on that and you can like maybe get to the crux of why you're really doing this job in the first place. Yeah. And like, I, and you know, at the time I was frankly not that good. Like I had good <laughs> questions, but I was still an amateur. Yeah. You know, I, I, I didn't have much experience. And also back then too, I was still very radio and newspaper oriented. Since then I've written articles for NBCnews.com. I've produced segments for MSNBC. Um, you know, it, it, the amount that has happened between then and now is a lot. And, you know, it, I think what's nice was that even though I didn't really know what was next, quote unquote, I still did have that roadmap of like, oh, I should get an internship. Oh, I should apply for the page program. You know, mm-hmm. there was still like that, you know, trajectory to follow. Right. I think if that happened at this current age, might have led to like a quarter life crisis afterward because, Mm. you know, there are lots of people who have, you know, those moments where like they're out of school and they're like, well, what now? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I I feel like that's kind of like what you guys are trying to get at with this podcast. Right. Right. Yeah. Now I really, Zach asked you about Yu-Gi-Oh earlier. I just want to talk about Yu-Gi-Oh, but we keep Mm. talking about stupid career stuff. (laughs) Well, through that, right. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) but no, but that's exactly that's exactly what we're trying to get at. Those type of moments where it's like, what do I do now? And is there is there is there a template for it? Do I have to make my own template for it? Right. And just essentially how our guests came up with a template for themselves and how they kind of followed that and readjusted it really. No, for sure. And like that's that's the thing. Like I didn't really have any cut and dry path but I also definitely had more of a structured map to follow than I think the average person did. Like, you know, I, I interned at CBS. Then after that, I interned for CBS local. Then I switched to NBC. When I graduated from college, I applied to the page program and Zach, that's how we met. Mm-hmm. Um, and- you know, went through the page program. I got hired out of my last assignment at MSNBC. Um, did a little bit 
over a year in that role. And then I switched to becoming a TV writer, which is always what I've wanted to do. I never really like, I always knew from like a young age, I wanted to be a writer of some sort. I do want to write a book at some point. I do want to write TV scripts at some point too, but it's also a trip saying that because I do that every day, but mm-hmm. news, which right. is still great. Yeah. Still, still writing prompts. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, it's just, you know, I've never really kind of sat down and thought of it like a connect the dot, like I am right now talking to you guys. So I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I think, when I look back and think about everything that I had to do to get me here and it's not just me, it's, you know, my family, my friends, coworkers takes a village to, to raise a reporter, but it's, it is remarkable to me how well things have worked out for me, at least in a career sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. One, one question I wanted to ask that I don't think we've been asking people, um, and maybe maybe they didn't have an answer to this, and maybe this isn't something that resonates with you, but is there anything in your career path or going through school that you wish that you maybe didn't do that was kind of like maybe a waste of time or you thought, thought oh, I thought that was going to be more important than it was? Honestly, I, and I'm, I'm lucky that I can say this, I really don't have any regrets on that front. Like, yeah. it, I'm amazed that I'm able to do what I do now now at this point in my life, um, you know, I, I've had weird sidesteps in my jobs, but even like the most quote unquote shitty job I've ever had still was formative and helped me later on. Like just for example, when I used to work at a customer service desk uh, selling lottery and uh, cigarettes, like I used that in my page program interview and I later found out that like, that that was what got their attention on right. it. And so, that's um, how you dealt with the morning show ladies. Right. That, that, no, it is. That's how we dealt with the morning show ladies. <laughs> that's how I dealt with the tourists. Um, yeah. Well, and, maybe that's even a better answer than, than yes, I wish I didn't do this because maybe your line of thinking is that you can get something out of anything you do, or at least that should be your goal to try to learn something in every aspect, even if, you know, it's not where you want to be or not what you actually want to do. Get, I mean, you keep talking, keep talking about the human side of things, which I think is important and maybe something that's a little lost on, you know, the next generation just because of how connected technology is, but like the actual human interaction, no matter what you're doing is pretty important and just learning about the people that you're around. And I think another way that that helps too um, going off what you were just saying about the human uh, interaction or the human aspect of it. Whenever I interview anyone, um, you know, I tend to go in with the same attitude as like, oh, this is the same as talking to JoJo, who I used to sell Virginia Slim 120s to, <laughs> you know, or like, oh, you know, talking to someone who, who has like a, you know, a less glamorous job or whatever, like whatever their life experience is, they are no less important than some big hotshot who is, uh, you know, elected to office or runs a big business. Like I really do firmly believe 
that every single person's opinion matters and that that's, you know, even though it's tricky because some people don't have informed opinions, I do think that everyone's opinion fundamentally does have an impact on the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, and that's, I try to have that kind of approach where it's like, if whether I'm talking to Obama or I'm talking to a local business owner or whatever, they're all at the end of the day on the same playing field in my eyes. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, uh, something I wanted to, um, to jump, touch on real quick was that was the page program and your experience in it, because all we have right now is we, we just talked with um, Ella who we yep. know like both didn't have the most, you know, she kind of had felt she had a negative experience in there just because she knew clearly what she wanted and she wasn't able to attain those positions that she wanted. But I was wondering if you could talk about your experience in it. Um, yeah. Um, I, th- the thing that about the page program is that I do think I think that it was very good to me just because it like, even though I had one assignment that I really did not like, um, I overall had a positive experience because I've made so many friends in our cohort, you know, our our group of our class, if you will, um, for those who are listening (laughs) and like the fact that I was able to make a network of friends there, I really thought I was never going to have that in uh, after college because honestly like when i was working that hard in college all you know when, when it came to having fun and like partying or whatever that went on the back burner um and i really didn't have that much fun in college and i feel like the fun that i was that i should have had in college i had with you guys so mm-hmm. because of that i'm very grateful in terms of career development even though i know it's like it's very different because like ella wanted to go into entertainment Um, And she made it very clear that she wanted to go into entertainment. For me, even though I was also interested in that too, my intention going into the page program was that I wanted to pivot from news and radio newspapers and radio to TV. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew that if I applied to work at whatever network, like my network, my resume would get blown out of the water by somebody else at that time. Mm. And I was having that experience. I was applying to jobs and not getting them. And when I got- Is that a a common jump that people make in the industry from news to more entertainment? Well, the thing is, I'm not sure how common that is, but it Mm -hmm. it certainly happens. Like, you know, I mean, right now, what I do producing segments for MSNBC that those same skills could be applied to, you know, a more analytical slash comedy show like John Stewart mm-hmm. or not. Or I, I mean, John Stewart, he's going to have his own show again. I'm not sure what that's going to look like, but maybe John Oliver, mm-hmm. um, Trevor Noah, that's Stewart's having his own show again. I haven't heard that. That's awesome. Netflix, right? Or yeah. One of those, maybe Apple TV. Oh, okay. I miss, I miss oh yeah. So yeah. Right. Yeah. But having the news background, especially in this day and age, does help with that. Mm-hmm. So I do think it's a possibility to, to make that pivot. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when I went into the PAGE program, I 
what like, I remember, I would, for example, like I remember I was disappointed I didn't get a mini assignment when everyone else did. Mm-hmm. But it's also like, in retrospect, how could I have done it? I didn't live in right. the city. No, but, and there weren't, you know, it wouldn't make sense to pay for effectively an intern to get a car into the city, you know? You know, that is something where it's, um, it, it can be one of those deals where it's your outlook on it too, where it's like, you're like, you, you view what happened. And when you look back on it you say, well, this is why it was probably good that I didn't get that. And it's kind of spending it in a positive way. There's, you could spend it in a negative way if you wanted to, too. Um, yeah, no, it's true. And it's very true. And, you know, like, I'll go back to the page program in a second. Mm-hmm. But um, have you guys ever heard of Viktor Frankl? Yeah. Yeah, so, I got uh, one of his books, The Meaning of Life. Or something Man's like Search that. for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning. That's what it is. Read it. Mm-hmm. Read it. It is, that book really did change my life when I read it. He, you know, he was a Holocaust survivor. And like, I've always been interested in that because even though I, I never met, even though I never met him, my grandfather was one too. Um, so, you know, like I've always been interested in the impact on that. And Viktor Frankl, he went to Auschwitz and a couple of other concentration camps. Um, and he talked about how, you know, even when you have every freedom taken away from you, when you are down in the dirt and you have really nothing going on in your favor, you, the one freedom that cannot be taken away from you is your ability to control how you react. You can always control how you react to things. Um, you could have the worst day of your life. And if you react one way, you can make it worse. If you react one the other way, you can start putting the pieces back together. You get the idea. Um, and I don't know, like, even now, you know, just to be blunt with you guys, like living by myself, this is the first time I've ever lived totally alone. Mm-hmm. Um, living totally alone in a pandemic it's been rough. And like, I've had days where I have real anxiety, real like mental health issues and keeping that in the back of my head has been a godsend. And I really wish more people read that book because it is deeply profound and you know, it's, it's an incredible story anyway, but having the, certain having that outlook on life and having this approach that, you know, even when you're about to have like a panic attack or freak out or something, you could even ask yourself, like, is this useful? That's, Mm -hmm. I love that phrase. Um, I think that's a great way to just be able to take a quick step back and be like, what does this do in the end? What's this do for me? Is it useful? Yeah. Yeah. And like, and honestly, sometimes it can be, if you're if you're not in the best spot in life and you need a little nudge from the universe being like, mm, might want to change things, that can be useful, maybe. Mm-hmm. But if you're bugging just because you're bugging, that's not useful to anyone. And I it's easier said than done, trust me. I was having my moments earlier this morning where I was like, ugh, like, you know, I just was feeling very low, low vibe, <laughs> to, mm-hmm. say, to say the least. But when you when you keep that in mind, it's just, it's a very empowering feeling. Mm-hmm. 
you know, any to go off on that tangent. No, no, that was great. And, you know, I feel like it kind of ties in a little bit with what we were talking about with luck. Like I know there are some people who will write out every day. They will write out uh, what it is, who who they want to be or what they want to accomplish. And they'll write that out every day. And the purpose of that is so that it sticks in your head so that you start to believe it. You start writing it out. Um, But what can also happen with that is, I mean, I think it's clear that if you are a positive person, you'll attract more positive people around you, just like you will, a negative person will attract more negative people or situations around you. Like they, they kind of gravitate towards each other. Um, and if you're a positive person who is, you know, kind of clear in what your purpose is and what you're looking for, your mind's also going to be more attuned to recognize those things in the world when you see them. That's, that's really what I think is interesting with that kind of practice uh, for me is it's just your eyes are open to it more. So you're going to look for positivity more. You're going to look for opportunities that would help you achieve that goal that you keep writing down every day. Um, and it just kind of yeah. makes your world, it, it might not necessarily be that you manifest it in your world, but that you open your peripheral vision and you recognize all the opportunities that there are to grasp that because you've right. practiced that and made yourself attuned to it. Yeah. And I know I called it, I called it luck earlier and, you know, definitely luck ha- plays a part mm. uh, to a certain extent, but I guess um, it'd be more accurate to say like you have to put it out in the universe first for it to ever to come to fruition. And, you know, it might be subconscious, like you said, Zach, you know, this is your goal and, you know, you put it out there and you're going to take steps to, get there maybe not even consciously but um i I do think that like you said you gravitate towards similar people and to um to goals and places you want to be if if you're thinking about it and it's something that like i said you put out to the universe and i think that's really important for people to um to understand that like you have to you have to you have to want it and you have to be able to visualize it or else it, it's not going to come true. Yeah, I definitely more so buy into the notion of creating your own luck as opposed to waiting for it to come to you. Right. There's a song by Disclosure that samples a pastor, and he says, where your focus goes, your energy flows. <laughs> and even though people roll their eyes at when you talk about like the law of attraction and manifesting and all of that stuff, don't knock it until you try it Mm -hmm. because if you can tap into that energy, like I know it's, you know, it sounds like I'm saying some voodoo shit, but it really is. uh, It's remarkable. I know I've been saying that word a lot lately. I don't know why, but I hadn't picked up on, but I I'm keeping a log here. It's (laughs) seven, seven times. that. Like if you're able to, you know, what you were just saying, if you can visualize what you want, I think it all kind of ties into this idea of, you know, what, whenever you read these books about like mindfulness and meditation and all that, there's this idea of abundance versus lack, which is kind of like the glass half empty glass, half full thing. So it's human nature for us to be hardwired to focus on the things that we lack and I'm guilty of it more than anyone. It's got to be like biologically for survival reasons, probably. Yeah. Like you're, it's like, oh, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough friends. Like lately I've been saying like, I don't have enough social interaction, which is probably true, but we can't control that because of the pandemic. And like, you know, 
if you focus on that, you're never going to have enough. But if you can focus on what you have that's abundant, you know, I may not be mega rich, but I can pay rent on my place right now. And a lot of people mm-hmm. can't. And I'm blessed that I can do that now. Um, you know, I'm blessed that I'm healthy and that I'm employed. And there's lots of things that I'm blessed about, you know, and uh, all of us are blessed with our own things and all of us have our own things that are our troubles. But if you can focus on what you've got, I think to your point, Zach, it's really beneficial because when you recognize the resources that you have, you know how to put them into action and get the thing that you want to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Gratitude. Gratitude definitely makes you have an appreciation for the base and, and where you're standing and then where you can go from there, as opposed to constantly looking ahead and being like, look how far away I am. Can you imagine how, how many of the world's problems would be so much like not, or so much less bad if more people had gratitude, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, just think about it. Like, I feel, yeah. I feel, you know, there would still be major issues. Don't get me wrong. But I feel like if there was more gratitude, more things would be respected. More people would be respected. You know, this is going off on a whole other yeah. spiritual tangent here, mm-hmm. but I really do think that that is like the most powerful like state anyone could be in. Because mm-hmm. you really can't be touched if you're grateful for what you got. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can't really take that away from you. Something else I wanted to touch on, Dan, was you had said you had lost m- most of your weight in this past year. I was curious about, um, I guess, kind of your journey with that and how you approach that and maybe any tips or what kind of strategies worked for you. So I will just preface by saying this is not a taboo subject for me. I'm down to talk about it in depth, but I 100% did not lose it in a healthy way. Okay. Um, I, I do think, you know, when I was losing this weight for a while, I was losing it in a healthy way. Like when I was living in the city, going to the gym after work, like I was going through a rough period in my life. Like I had a rough period with my family in 2016 then things got better there's another rough period that started in 2019 and extended into 2020 mm-hmm. um when that was going on i was like okay i need to do something with my life that will make my life a little bit better and i channeled that product i was like okay if i'm not gonna i don't want to you know drink or something and be self-destructive i want to do something that's good. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll exercise. And I lost a decent amount of weight just from exercise alone, not even really changing my food intake. But during the pandemic, when I came back home and I couldn't go back to the gym, I was like, okay, I'm not trying to stall my progress here. And that was a very stressful time because I had other stuff going on. I had, there was tensions in my household when I moved back home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, my family and I have since made up, but there, there was a rough period. And during that time, I was extremely stressed. And that when you feel like you've lost control of a lot of things in your life, one thing that is easy to control is your food. 
and I was running a lot and I was seeing the scale to go down and I was like, Oh, this is great. And you know, people who I would zoom with or whatever would say to me like, Oh, you look great. I was going to say, was that conflicting? Well, the thing that's, that is, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but I realized it later on when I did the research, you know, if I was super skinny and my face looked gaunt instead of, I guess, quote unquote, normal, like it did, people would have thought I had an eating disorder. And I probably did for a period of time. I wasn't formally diagnosed, so I'm not, I don't want to make it seem, you know, I don't want to make it seem like I know concretely, but when I did the research, it certainly added up. It was, it was disordered eating patterns for sure. And I'm grateful that I had close friends who I was still seeing on a semi-regular basis who live around here. You know, even though like I wasn't going out because of social distancing or whatever, I do have those three friends that live together. Mm -hmm. They moved in together during the pandemic and like, they're really the only place I went to aside from my own home. And you know, they were kind of like, okay, Dan, like I'm sounding the alarm here. Like, you know, you got to take it easy. And did, you know, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask like, did, was it a formal sit down with them? Like how did they approach saying that to you? It wasn't a formal sit down, but my best friend, I was, I was talking with him. Like you guys probably talk with and just kind of BS and talk about whatever. And I forget exactly what I said, but I said something to him that made him alarmed. Mm -hmm. And I knew knowing him for as long as I have known him, he's my absolute best friend. I'd take a bullet for him. Um, Knowing that he felt that way kind of woke me up. Mm. And on top of that, I don't want to get into too many details, Mm -hmm but I also started having real health complications caused from like malnourishment. And I didn't realize it because I was a bigger dude who was losing weight. And I was always like, you know, I was always the chubby kid when I was younger. Like, uh, you know, I was always like the fat kid, quote unquote, that was my kind of thing. And I think part of the reason why I leaned into comedy too and the arts was because if I wasn't athletic, I could at least be smart. And if I could be smart, I can be funny and, and potentially like, you know, you can't laugh at me if I can laugh at myself first. Mm -hmm. That was definitely a, a big thing. And when I lost that weight, what was very tricky was that I did have moments saying to myself like, Oh, you know, should I, am I doing the right thing? And when you have all these people telling you like, Oh, you look awesome. And, and you know, that's confusing. Mm -hmm. But then on top of that, the thing that was very disheartening and like, I don't mean to be a, a real downer here, but there were 100% people who I never noticed this when I was big. I never really viewed the way people talked to me, but I've noticed that some people 
were definitely more interested in what I had to say when I was thinner. Hmm. There were definitely people who they were, I don't know. It was almost like I was invisible before and I was like a background character, like, Oh, Hey Dan. And this time it's like, Oh, like I care about what he has to say. It might just me being me being crazy, but I've talked to other people who I'm friends with who have lost a lot of weight too. And they understand what that's like. So it leads me to think Mm -hmm. I'm not. Um, but you know, at that point as well, like what also was tricky was that over the summer during all of this, I was kicked out of my parents' house. Um, and I had to scramble to find a place to live, which is where I'm living now. And at the time I was still paying rent on my apartment in the city. Mm. And I'm fortunate that I still had my job and I had enough money saved to cover it, but that was a massive stress. Um, during, during two of my first weeks at my current job, I was sleeping on my friend's couch, living out of my car. And, you know, when I finally moved in here and got settled, you know, I stopped caring about that. And, you know, I was like, okay, whatever, like, I'm going to eat whatever I want. I did the research on it. I read a fantastic book called Mm -hmm. Anti-Diet. You know, they talk about how dieting really is so bad for you. And I didn't even realize how deep I was in it until I was super deep in it. I never thought I would be that type of person in my life. Um, But when, you know, I've repaired my relationship with food and everything, like I'm good now, the health problems that I had went away. Um, But, you know, I guess when it comes to losing weight, I didn't mean this to go into a dark turn, but I, I guess I would just advise anyone who wants to lose weight you know, th- ask yourself why you're doing it. If, yeah. If, if you're doing it for anybody else, it's not a good reason. Um, and I, and toward the beginning of me doing it, I really did need to, I was having problems that I shouldn't have been having in my early twenties, like with like certain back pain, like breathing troubles. I was really having some problems, but there's a certain point where you're good. And I went way beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, and what else would I say? Like, I know it sounds cliche to say, but it's like, whatever issue you think it's going to solve, it's not going to solve it. Like body image and your weight, totally different stories. And not many dudes talk about it. It's more of something that women talk about, but it's definitely it's a very slippery slope and I just personally would never recommend anybody diet after the experience that I had. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's, that's great to hear that you, I mean, it, that was really important to be able to hear your perspective on that. And it was great to be able to hear that you're doing well now and kind of recognize that and have it stable at this point. Um, but it does go to show too what, help good friends can do in terms of that. Cause I'm sure, you know, you know, that guy only has your best intentions in mind. So when he says it, then you're like, maybe I need to take a second look and, and see how I'm really approaching this. 
Yeah. And, and really him saying that, like he literally said the words to me, like, all right, Dan, I'm sounding the alarm. Mm. Like when he said that, I was like, okay, he's not messing around. Like he mm. wouldn't say that shit unless he really thought that was the case. And, you know, I don't know, like when I was younger, I used to always, whenever people would be like, oh, I'm not going to eat that. I'd always be like, like what? Like I just, I never, <laughs> I never cared about my body image when I was younger. I never did. Um, but I don't know, like when, when so much of my life was out of my control, that's what happened. And, you know, even though I'm not happy that it happened to me, I'm also, you know, it's, it shouldn't happen to anybody. I'm not trying to glorify it at all. It's horrible, but in a way I'm glad it happened at this point in my life instead of when I'm like older, because Mm -hmm. I feel like if I was older, this could have had longer term damage on my body. Mm -hmm. But you you win some, you lose some. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I, 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 like Zach said, I think a, a good takeaway from that is, you know, how important it is to surround yourself with people who actually care about you for the right reasons. And, uh, like Zach said, have your best interest, uh, in mind. Yeah. It's really important because you can, you can not realize and be surrounding your, yourself with people who don't actually, you know, care about you. And I, I think a lot of people are in those type of situations and maybe need to get out of them. Yeah. And that's why I'm grateful. Like I know a lot of people will say, you know, and I think you guys know what it's like because you guys know each other as day ones, but like lots of people be like, Oh, like you're still friends with your high school friends. And I'm like, yeah, they know me better than literally myself, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, they, I, the funny thing is too, is, you know, not to, I won't get too deep into it, but we all had like our moments where we were like kind of drifted in college or whatever, but we had, we lost one of our own in college and that brought us all back together again. And when that happened, I feel like we all had this kind of mutual understanding. Like we're all, like, no matter what, like we've got each other's backs mm-hmm. and you know, that has paid so many dividends, especially during Corona. If they didn't let me crash on their couch, I don't know what I would have done. In yeah. August. Mm-hmm. Like I, I probably would have went to a hotel and paid a lot of money and been pissed, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but you know, I, I, I've said this to them a million times and like, you know, um, don't get me wrong. Like what happened with my family? Like I, we're repairing it now. Um, but last year, aside from being an increased an insanely turbulent year in general in news for me, it was by far my most turbulent year personally. And, you know, I didn't get out of it unscathed, but I'm back better than ever. You know, what's, what's the thing Cardi B says, knock me down nine times, but I get up 10. Like that's, it's hard to, it's hard to have that attitude when you feel like you're getting beaten down, but I've tried really hard to keep that glass half full mentality and remembering the thing that Viktor Frankl said about controlling your reactions and controlling your outlook has really saved me many times. Well, and Dan, I mean, 
I, I think that's a great point to kind of wrap up on, to be honest with you. Um, I think you touched on a lot of really great stuff in terms of reflecting on yourself and your life and your insight through your journey. I mean, you have a lot of incredible stories and really great insight. And I think there would be a good bit of people out there who would find this really valuable. And it's, it's great to hear you're doing better and everything's obviously, you know, not going to be all perfect, but it's great to hear you're, you're, you're doing pretty well, man. And it was really fun catching up with you too. Oh, dude, this has been a blast. I'm like, this is honestly the most fun I've had in like weeks. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's great. I, I agree. <laughs> so, seriously. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Like it really, it's been an honor to talk with you guys and catching up with you, Zach and getting to meet you, Connor. Like, yeah, man. It's been great. And I you know I, I've been listening to your podcast anyway, since it came out, but like, this is a fantastic podcast. I love what you guys are doing. Well, thank you for Thanks, being man. on, man. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's the guests and people who are willing to open up like that, that really um, help make it what we're trying to make it at least and have the conversations that we'd like to have on here. I'm not about taboos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're pretty open. <laughs> boring, you know, like if it, I get it, like people have stuff they want to keep private. I'm at a point in my life where I'm like, you know what? It is what it is. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> so um, it's been a pleasure. And literally anytime, if you guys never need anything, please feel free to hit me up. Like literally whenever. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks a ton for coming on. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening to another episode of After School Program. Feel free to check out our website, ASPPOD.com, for show notes and transcripts. And follow us on social media at ASPPOD. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and tell a friend who you think would like the show. Thanks again, and see you next time.